If you've got your Bibles here, you can follow in the worship guide. Our sermon text is Exodus 4. It's quite a, a long one, so I'm going to ask you to stand. So Exodus 4 from verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe in the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go and I will be with your mouth, he said. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with you, be with your mouth and with his mouth. And will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you will say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, 
took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We ask that you would now bless the preaching of your word, that through it you would continue to conform us unto Christ, and that we would bear much fruit for, for your glory. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, perhaps you've been in, in a conversation with um, friends or, or family about your faith in, in Christ, and perhaps they respond to you as you are, are um, witnessing to them and, and, and along the lines of, well, you know, we'd love to believe all that stuff, but, you know, we just need a sign, you know, because there's no proof that God exists and we need God to to rock up and show that he's, he's, he's truly God. And once I see that sign, then you know, I'll believe with, with pleasure. Or maybe even you have cried out to God for some sort of a sign in, in, in your life, a sign that, that demonstrates to you that he, he cares, that he's, he's near to you, that, that he indeed loves you. Now, in our text this morning, God provides signs through Moses to the, for the elders of Israel so that they will believe that God has indeed sent Moses and that God indeed intends to save Israel from bondage in Egypt. But these very same signs will also be performed before Pharaoh. The interesting thing is that those same signs that lead to faith for the Israelites lead to hardness and unbelief in Pharaoh. And so what we're going to see this morning in this text is that because God has defeated the powers of darkness by his mighty hand and outstretched arm, through signs, the only appropriate response to him is to trust him and to worship him. So, um, you're definitely getting um, more than you would have bargained for this morning because there are not three points. We've got five points. Okay, so buckle up. Um, first point, signs to believe. Secondly, Moses' disobedience. Thirdly, Pharaoh's hard heart. Fourthly, God seeks to kill Moses. And lastly, trust and worship. So, first off, signs to believe. So if you remember from last week's text, we're in Exodus 3, 
And there we saw that God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And he revealed to him his personal name, I am that I am, or, or Yahweh. And it, the reason God gave him that his, his personal name was for the purpose that he would go to the, the elders of Israel and they would know that God, the true God of Israel, had indeed sent him. And in fact, in Exodus 3 verse 18, God gives Moses a promise that the elders of Israel will listen to him. Now, if you remember, chapter 4 begins, and it starts off with Moses still doubting that God is going to be true to his word. He's not convinced that the elders are going to believe his incredible encounter with God in the burning bush and, and all the rest of it. despite. God having promised him that, that they most certainly will. And so verse 1, Moses expresses his doubts. He says, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. So God is really patient with Moses here for a while. And so in response to Moses' unbelief, God provides Moses with a series of signs that serve as proof that God has indeed come to save his people. And so the purpose of these signs is expressed to us in in verse 5 where it says that they may believe that the Lord has appeared to you. So it's very important. Here we have the purpose of signs and wonders. The signs are ultimately given to Israel so that Israel may believe in God and trust that he really is going to deliver them and save them out of bondage um, to e- in Egypt. So God provides Moses with three signs, which he's got to perform before the elders of Israel. First sign is that Moses' staff when he throws it on the floor, it turns into a snake. And it's obviously a scary, well, all snakes are scary. I don't care if it's a brown house snake, it's a cobra. It's all the same category. You run. So Moses runs. He sees this horrible thing on the ground. And then God says, no, no, go and touch it by its tail. Yeah, I just can't even imagine what that is like. And then he picks it up and then it miraculously turns back into to the staff again. Then the second sign is that Moses puts his hand in the cloak and then he takes it out and it's full of leprosy. It's obviously a deadly skin disease. And then when he puts it back in the cloak, it's healthy again. And then the third sign is that he doesn't do this then and there, but God says, when you get to Egypt, when you're at the Nile there with um, Israel, then you will get some water from the Nile and you will pour it out onto the ground and that water of the Nile would turn to blood. So what's the significance of these three signs? You know, are they just some random like, party tricks that God wants to do? Or do they reveal something a bit more significant? Well, through these signs, God is going to demonstrate his power over the powers of darkness, over the demons of Egypt. So let's take, for example, the first sign. Now, the Hebrew word that's used here for serpent is nachash. And it's that same word that's used in Genesis 3. That's no accident. 
Okay, for the serpent in, in the Garden of Eden, basically the serpent Satan, and we, we know that in the light of the New Testament. Now, it's also no coincidence that, that, that the serpent, specifically the cobra, was a divine figure in ancient Egypt. Okay, if you've seen those depictions of, of, of Pharaoh on Egyptian art, on his crown, he's got this cobra sitting on his crown. And then his staff is in the form of, of uh, scepters in the form of, of a snake. Um, and so what it's telling us is that the ancient Egyptians, okay, for the, the Hebrew eyes here, they were worshipping Satan ultimately. They were worshipping a, a snake god who's ultimately Satan. And so the fact that God now has the power to turn a stick into a serpent and then back into a stick, what's that telling us? Well, it's telling us that God has power and authority over the snake god of Egypt. He's got the power and authority over Satan himself. He's subject to God. The snake is ultimately subject to the sovereign will of God. So what about the leprous hand? Well, it's also a demonstration of God's power over sickness and sickness from the curse. So God's power to make a hand leprous and then restore it, it shows his dominion over the creation and ultimately over the the powers of darkness that are operating in this world. And then what about the waters of the Nile that, that, that turned to blood? And obviously this is a preview of one of the plagues of Egypt that we'll see later. Well, this is a sign is, is very significant. And also when it's performed on a greater scale with, with the plagues, this, the same point being made here is that the Nile the, for the ancient Egyptians was worshipped as a god. It was seen as a divine force because it brought life into the land of Egypt. So when the Lord turns the Nile to blood, what is he demonstrating? He's demonstrating his power over the Nile God, that he's essentially killing it. It's what happens? Blood flows from when something is, is put to death. So he's, he's demonstrating his lordship over the Nile God, over the, the gods, the demons of Egypt, through this little preview of these three signs to demonstrate God's power over the, the powers of, of darkness, over the demons of Egypt, that he's going to defeat them, that he's going to crush them. And because of these signs of God's imminent victory over the powers of darkness, what this means then for Israel is that they must believe that Moses is, has indeed been sent by God. And that God has indeed power to save them and deliver them from these powers of darkness and bring them into freedom in the promised land. So second point, Moses' disobedience. Now, despite God providing Moses with these three miraculous signs, despite God preparing Moses for this task since he was a little child, and despite God's repeated assurance that the elders of Israel are going to listen to him, Moses still finds a host of reasons to resist the call of God upon his life. So Moses says in verse 10, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, 
neither in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. So the Hebrew phrase here, slow of speech, it can be literally translated as I have a heavy mouth or I have a a dull mouth. Now, maybe Moses suffered from some sort of extreme shyness, but the indications are from the text that he probably suffered from some sort of a a speech impediment um, or some sort of a stutter, some sort of embarrassing twitch when when he, he spoke and but really, whether he was shy or whether he couldn't speak properly, it's besides the point. Because Moses' real problem was an obedience problem. Now, God had been abundantly clear with him at the burning bush, promising that the Israelites would listen to him, that he would be the one to lead them out of bondage into freedom, and even giving him the signs to conform, confirm this. So what, what more could this guy possibly need? So instead of trusting God, Moses starts to make more excuses. And so reading between the lines of Moses' statement to God in in verse 10, what he's doing is that he's actually blaming his, the reason why he can't speak properly, he blames it on God. Now God's having none of this. And God replies in verse 11, he says, well, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, the reality is that it's the sovereign Lord who created every single one of us. Psalm 139, 13 says that he is he who formed our inward parts and he who knitted us together in our mother's womb. And because of this, some there is... Verse 14 in Psalm 139 carries on to say that every single one of us are fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, there's not one of us whom God has made some sort of a mistake with or that he's shortchanged or somehow we are damaged goods in terms of our appearance or our abilities or, or any of our bodily functions. All, what the, the verse uh, 11 is, is clear here, is that there's not all our abilities and all of our gifts and even our disabilities and our limitations have been ordained by the Lord. So what this means then is that it's sinful for us to grumble against the Lord for the way that he has made us. And this is exactly what Moses is doing here. What we need to do instead is that we to serve God with the gifts that he has granted us, but also in our weaknesses and in order that we may bring him glory. In verse 12, we see that even despite Moses' speech impediment, God promises to be with him in his weakness, as he will be with him in his mouth and teach him what he shall speak. But still Moses objects. Verse 13, he says, oh, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. And in response to now Moses' flagrant disobedience and stiff-neckedness, 
Verse 14, this is like the understatement of the century, that the anger of the Lord was kindled. Now God resolves Moses' stubbornness quite graciously, actually, by saying that Aaron, his brother, is going to help him and speak him on his behalf. Now we could say that it's probably not Moses' well, God's best for, for Moses. And as the story of Exodus unfolds, what we're going to see is that Aaron is somewhat of a mixed blessing. If you know the story, you know. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Now we can only wonder, and this is obviously just speculation here, we can only wonder how many blessings Moses missed out on because of his hard-heartedness towards the call of God. Despite all these assurances the Lord gave him, the signs and the wonders, the promises, you know, he, it, 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 God could have used him in, 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 a, in a unique way, but he, he really resisted that, and so Aaron was brought along there. But in any case, the Lord used him mightily. Yeah, that, that is clear. He was a great leader. He was one of Israel's greatest prophets. But what this episode shows us is that as great as he was, he was imperfect. And what that's showing, ultimately pointing us to is, well, is telling us that actually there's, there's still a perfect one who's coming. There's a greater one than Moses who's coming. There's a greater prophet. As great as Moses was, there's still a greater prophet, a greater one that's coming. And Hebrews um, 2 tells us very explicitly who that greater prophet than Moses is. Well, it's Jesus Christ himself. This brings us to our third point. Pharaoh's hard hearts. So now, after Moses gets permission from his father-in-law to return to the land of Egypt, you know, just as a footnote, he doesn't tell him the whole truth. Okay? He lies. Anyway. You see, he's an imperfect guy. We must always bear this in mind. We don't, our biblical figures, we don't imitate as if they are perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. Yeah, you see, Moses is a bit of a liar. He and his family set off. And on the way, the Lord says to Moses that not only is he going to perform these signs to the elders of Israel, which are going to lead them to believe in God, and um, we're going to demonstrate God's power to save them, but Moses must also perform these signs to Pharaoh. And these same miracles are going to have the opposite effect on Pharaoh. Instead of causing Pharaoh to believe in God and worship him, God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart, as verse 21 says, so that he will not let the people go. Now, this theme of God increasingly hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh's heart becoming increasingly resolute against God, well, this is one of the major themes in Exodus. So we're going to return to this and zoom in on it in more detail in, in, in the weeks to come. But for the point that's being made in specifically in this text is, is that why is it that some miracles the same, well, the same miracles that will cause Israel to believe in God are going to result in Pharaoh to harden his heart against God. Well, the answer to this lies in the purpose of signs and wonders. 
Now, throughout Scripture, signs and wonders are never just some random magic tricks. There's always a purpose to them. They always have some significance in redemptive history. And they reveal who God is, and they demonstrate his power over darkness and over his creation, and they reveal his purposes to redeem his people for himself. They confront us with the reality of who God is. And so this is precisely why Jesus in his ministry does signs and wonders. They're not just some magic tricks so that we can also do some magic tricks. They have got a specific redemptive purpose to reveal that he's God. That he has come to save his people and crush the powers of darkness. So in the face of these miracles, you must either acknowledge that God is indeed the Lord of all creation and therefore submit to him and and worship him. Or you must utterly reject him. There's no middle ground here. And one rejects him, you reject the living God through demonstrated through signs and wonders because when these things are demonstrated in, before one's eyes, one is confronted with a God who actively intervenes in our lives, who intervenes in history. And that is an affront to our autonomy, to our own sense of independence and our belief that we are the masters of our own destinies. Miracles shatter that mirage. And miracles are a little glimpse of the reality that ultimately everyone is subject to the sovereign God. Now, Pharaoh thinks he's almighty and, and he's powerful. He, he was believed and he, to, believe, to be himself a divine being. And we see that worked out in, later on in, in Exodus. And if you believe you're a divine being, well, you certainly don't believe that you're subject to anyone else but yourself. And so these miraculous signs, these are just little glimpses that expose Pharaoh's self-deception. And that's why he has to reject God. Hey, Moses, God certainly has hardened Pharaoh's heart. The text tells us that explicitly. But at the same time, Pharaoh was never forced to do anything against his will. Okay, Pharaoh here is no victim. We should not be thinking, oh, poor Pharaoh, he was just had no other option but to be hardened by God. No. Ultimately, God's purposes will be fulfilled even through the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And God's going to demonstrate his, his sovereign power over this rebellious and stubborn king by defeating the gods of Egypt culminating in the slaying of Pharaoh's firstborn son, which we already see a preview of that in verse 23. And that's that final um, plague, the killing of the firstborn, is then is going to result in Israel being set free to, to leave Egypt. Those bring us to our fourth point. God seeks to kill Moses. You've been waiting for this one. I know that. Now, 
So Moses and his family, they, they continue their journey back to Egypt and this seemingly bizarre event takes place on the road. God meets Moses and he wants to kill him. And quickly his wife Zipporah intervenes and, and she circumcises his son Gershom and she wipes the blood from his foreskin onto Moses' feet. And then she says in verse 25, Surely you are bridegroom of blood to me. And God then relents in his anger and leaves Moses alone. So what on earth is going on here? <laughs> well, the key question is, why is God angry with Moses? Is it because of his previous disobedience to his call? Okay, sure, that certainly made God angry. See that in verse 14. But this is something different. The reason God's angry with Moses here is that Moses hasn't circumcised his son. And you think, well, yeah, why is that such a big deal? Well, and why is it even such a big deal that God wants to kill Moses? Well, it's such a big deal because circumcision for Israel was the sign, basically for males only, that you were included in God's covenant. I'm not saying the ladies weren't included in the covenant. We're talking about headship and families here, nature of the covenant. Okay, it was through circumcision that, male, that people, Israel was included in the covenant, that you're part of the covenant community, you're part of the, what we call the visible church. So God says this to Abraham. We need to go back to Genesis 17 where God made covenant with Abraham and a part of the covenant, the sign of it is circumcision. 17.11, and he makes this covenant with Abraham and his offspring after him that he will be their God, they will be his people, and he will grant them the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. Now, Moses is about to lead Israel into that land of Canaan, into the land of promise that's all connected with this covenant with, with Abraham. But the huge problem here is Moses has broken that very covenant. So how on earth is he meant to lead the people of Israel into the land of the promise that's promised through this covenant? This is the end of Genesis 17, 14 says that any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now that's a serious thing. Because it means that God is just in wanting to put Moses to death. The wages of sin, of breaking the covenant, is death. And therefore blood needs to be shed. Because God's justice demands that. Now, part of the significance of circumcision in the first place is that it points towards the promise of forgiveness of sins. Yeah, and the, the turning away of God's wrath through the shedding of blood. It's all connected with the sacrificial system of Israel. That animals were, were, were slaughtered, their blood was shed instead of humans in order that God would, would not um, kill Israel, that instead the life of the animal um, would be taken instead of their life. So circumcision is a little 
picture of that blood sacrifice, that blood is being shed um, to, to turn away the wrath of God. And so this is exactly why Zipporah acts very quickly and circumcises her son and wipes his blood on Moses, not only to keep Gershom the son in, in the covenant, but also to show that Moses' sin of not having had his son circumcised, that's been essentially atoned for. The blood has been shed for sin. And so it's precisely for this reason that circumcision is no longer the sign of the covenant of grace. But now has been fulfilled in baptism. Remember, there's one covenant of grace that stretches across redemptive history. The Old Testament administration of that was the Abrahamic covenant, a part of the covenant of grace. But as redemptive history unfolds and comes towards its, its fulfillment, the covenant of grace finds fulfillment in the new covenant. So it's, it's one substance, one across redemptive history, but it's administered slightly differently. And an example of the difference of how the covenant of grace is administered between Abraham and between the new covenant is the sign of the covenant changes. In the, in the, with Abraham, it's the sign of circumcision. In the new covenant, it is baptism. And Colossians 2 makes this link explicitly. This is not just a grid that's been imposed in Scripture. It's within Scripture itself. So how is this so? How is it that, why is it that we don't circumcise boys anymore who are eight days old and children of believers? Well, the reason is that blood's already been shed. Okay, the shedding of blood and circumcision, what that was ultimately pointing to was Christ's blood being shed on the cross. And pointing to him who would turn away the wrath of God that was meant for us. And now that Christ's blood has been shed, now that Jesus has suffered and died on the cross himself, well, there's now no need for any more blood to be shed. There's no need for any more painful practices because Christ has taken all the pain on himself on the cross and his blood has been shed on the cross. And so now the sign of the covenant is baptism, something which is absolutely blood-free and pain-free. Now, just as circumcision was commanded for all Israel because it was a sign of the covenant God made with them. It was a sign that God's people belonged to God. In the same way, baptism is the sign of the new covenant that God has made with us. That, that we belong to God. Now, obviously, the sign itself doesn't save us. Only Christ himself saves us. But as we see taught in the text like this, it is still necessary for all believers and their children to be baptized. In fact, it's sinful to withhold it and, and, and not to, to be baptized. And why is that? Well, it's, it's a sign. It's an outward sign of the inward reality, reality. It's a sign of God's covenant promises on our lives. That brings us to our final, our fifth point, trust and worship. 
So as Moses continues his, his journey, uh, the Lord sovereignly brings Aaron to meet him at Mount Sinai, and then both of them proceed together to go and meet the elders of Israel. And um, as the plan was in the beginning of the chapter, um, Aaron speaks God's word on behalf of Moses, and then Moses performs uh, the miraculous signs. And so what's the response of the people of Israel to these? Well, verse 31 tells us, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So brothers and sisters, herein lies the appropriate response to God's word and his miraculous signs of deliverance. And that appropriate response is to trust him and to worship him. So to bring this all together, now many look for a sign from God that they may know him, that they may know that he's real and that he's near. And and many expect God to prove himself to them. And then if he does, then they will believe. The reality is that God's already given us a sign. He's given us the greatest sign. In fact, the greatest miracle, the greatest sign and wonder of all. And what is that sign? Well, it's the empty tomb. Jesus, God's promised Messiah, the promised seed of the woman, came to earth to redeem God's people. And though he was bruised by the serpent on a, on the, by his death on the cross, didn't end there. On the third day, God miraculously raised him from the dead. Not as a spirit, not as an apparition, but as a flesh and bone human being with the resurrection body that could touch and smell and eat. And it was through this sign, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that the head of the serpent is crushed. That Satan and all the powers of darkness have been defeated. And that we who have broken covenant with God through our sins, through our rebellion, through our stubbornness, our hard-heartedness. We who deserve to be struck down by God for all these things. We have someone who has kept covenant on our behalf. And because Jesus' blood has been shed on our behalf, because his blood has been shed instead of ours, because God has raised him from the dead, death has no hold on us. Our sins have been forgiven. The wrath of God, if we trust in him, has been turned away from us. The Holy Spirit has been poured out in abundance upon us, and we have been reconciled to our Father in heaven. And the empty tomb is the sign that these gospel truths are true. So brothers and sisters, repent and trust in Christ. Trust in the greatest sign and wonder, his resurrection from the dead. Trust him who has conquered the powers of darkness by his mighty hand and outstretched arm, redeeming you to be his own people so that you can worship him 
forever, our mighty and victorious King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. Let's pray.